Our sermon passage for this morning comes from Exodus 4, 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Well, movies have changed over the years. I'm not talking about subject matter, but style. So growing up, I watched a lot of movies at my grandparents from the 30s and 40s with stars like Jimmy Stewart and Katherine Hepburn. You can judge me later. And in those movies, the cameras were pretty stationary for the most part, right? So even in action sequences, when the Lone Ranger would kind of like go up the mountain, the camera was just still, and all the action happened by the actors on screen. But now, nearing 100 years later, movie styles are totally different. Now it seems like the camera changes every few seconds, right? So even in a dialogue filled with different you know, conversation, the, the cameras just pan out and switch faces and angles and perspectives. So it almost feels like the conversation, though it could go on for 10 minutes, is sped up. These days, we want action. We hate boredom. That's what gets people out to the movies these days. Well, for the past several months, we've been studying through the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. Exodus is a true story of God's dealings with his people Israel in slavery to Egypt around the 1400s BC. And what we've seen throughout chapters three and four is this sort of extended dialogue between God and Moses, this man that he's calling out to lead his people from Egypt. Moses has debated with God, and he's argued again and again that he's the, the wrong man for the job. But as we saw last week, God has won the argument, and Moses has agreed to carry out the plan. 
And this morning, in the passage that Alex just read for us, we see sort of a change in style, don't we? Uh, The tempo picks up dramatically, and the scenes start coming at a much faster pace. So what has been a lengthy dialogue between God and Moses goes from 0 to 60 in 14 brief verses. We see Moses not only at the burning bush, but we see him both in Midian, Sinai, or in Egypt. Having conversations with Jethro, God, Zipporah, his wife, Aaron, his brother, and his fellow Israelites. Everything is speeding up. It's happening more quickly, and there's much to take in. But with our time today, I want to actually like not get into the details of all that different style of writing, but actually zoom out a bit and get more of a 30,000-foot view of the theme running through this passage. It's a theme that will really run through the next several chapters and indeed the entire book. And it's not a theme about Moses, kind of like what we looked at last week. It's not a theme about Aaron. It's not a theme about Israel. It's a theme about God. God is judge. He is the God of perfect justice and perfect judgment. And this morning, let's see that in three different ways from this text. First, the judge hardens. The judge hardens. Second, the judge executes. The judge executes. And finally, the judge pardons. The judge pardons. I had hardens and pardons. I couldn't think of a rhyme, you know, for executes. So if you have one, come up to me afterwards. All right, so first, the judge hardened. So in verse 18, Moses has finally obeyed God's call. He goes to his father-in-law Jethro and asks for permission to take his wife and sons and head back to Egypt. It's been four decades. Last time he went to Egypt, he was a hunted man. This is a big decision. It's courteous for him to let the head of the household know. Jethro is cool with it, though. He says there, verse 18, go in peace. We'll see wisdom from Jethro later in Exodus as well. And there in verse 19, it seems like God again, as he has been doing in the last few chapters, goes out of his way to reassure an anxious Moses. He tells him all the people who had wanted him dead for his crime in chapter 2 when he murdered the Egyptian, they're now dead themselves. So with all the things that are stressing him out, at least that one is off the table. And so in verse 20, he sets out for Egypt. It's happening. He's agreed, and actually the speed of this chapter kind of communicates the speed of his obedience. The deliverer is going back to his homeland, carrying there in verse 18 the staff of God, the staff with which he would perform the signs God had given him, the staff that represented all of God's authority and call on Moses' life and mission. He is God's deliverer. There in verse 21, God says that Moses will eventually perform these signs for Pharaoh himself. That's new information. He knew he'd do it for the Israelite elders, but hey, hey Moses, you're going to do it for the king. But God again tells him, even still, Pharaoh will not let Israel go. And Moses is already aware of that problem because back in chapter 3 verse 19 God had said I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. After that, he will let you go. But here, Moses gets even more info about how that, that kind of reluctance to let Israel go will all go down. So Pharaoh will not let Israel go because the Lord says, I will harden his heart. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here today because it's going to come up a ton in the weeks ahead. But for now, see that God has all authority over Pharaoh, even to the point of hardening Pharaoh's heart in order to work out his plan, even to the point of actually working in and through Pharaoh's stubborn sin to bring judgment on Egypt. God, the judge, will harden Pharaoh's heart. And notice this isn't just something God sees happening coming down the pike. It's in the future, but he knows it's going to happen. I think sometimes I, and maybe you guys can relate, can think of God in his omniscience, so his, his attribute where he knows everything, kind of like he's some cosmic fortune teller, right? Some psychic with a crystal ball who can tell us what's going to happen. He foresees it, and therefore he knows it. But here in Exodus 4, God doesn't just tell Moses what's going to happen because he sees it on the horizon. He tells Moses what's going to happen because he's the one who's going to make it happen. He's already planned it. It's set. And so yet again in Exodus, what has been the predominant theme throughout our study here so far comes here again. We see that God is sovereign. He doesn't merely foresee. He elects, he plans, he executes. Friends, we're more than welcome to wrestle with that truth, to try and reconcile it with what we know of the world. And I think we can rightly dispute notions that this truth excuses us from responsibility, like some people would say, or other things like it makes us like automatons in a predetermined system, robots. Those things are certainly not true. But regardless of how you choose to work through the mental gymnastics to try to take God's hardening power and sovereignty and match it up with your will, we must be careful not to diminish what is clear here in Exodus 4 and what remains clear throughout Scripture. God determines history. The sovereign judge has amazing power and majestic authority that he wields over peoples and governments, over even time itself. Pharaoh doesn't know what he's about to get himself into. This is a God unlike anything he's ever seen before. So God tells Moses Pharaoh will resist his plan of deliverance because God himself will harden Pharaoh's heart. And in the end, God's plan will win. There in verse 22, he calls Israel his firstborn and says, if Pharaoh refuses to let his son go, then he will kill Pharaoh's firstborn. It's the first time in all of scripture that God calls Israel his son. And it's not the last. It'll come up repeatedly throughout the rest of scripture. And we'll hopefully, Lord willing, see more about that in chapter 12. But notice here God's commitment to his people. He is their father. They are his children. And he uses that truth to then threaten Pharaoh. 
He speaks and Pharaoh must listen. God the judge speaks and the rulers of the world must listen. One of the prayers from the Book of Common Prayer in part goes like this. O Lord, the hearts of kings are in your rule and governance and you dispose and turn them as seems best to your godly wisdom. Church, isn't that what we see here in Exodus 4? Take a deep breath and look at that judge. In the midst of a world where the news cycle talks of wars and rumors of wars, where governments are as corrupt as they've ever been, and on the lookout for their own power grabs, where the innocent are exploited and abused and the wicked flourish. What a comfort it is to be reminded that the Lord, our Lord, holds the hearts of kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and chancellors and generals and ayatollahs and popes and dictators and sheikhs in the palm of his hand and just turns them and, and rotates them and, and uses them as seems best in his great wisdom. Church, that's our God. He's in control. Don't ever forget, he is in control, even over the hearts of kings. This judge hardens. Next, the judge executes. And there's a bit of a double meaning there. What I mean is basically is that God, the judge, executes justice perfectly. But as we'll see in these verses, he literally almost executes. He doesn't just speak a good game. He's always going to carry out perfect justice. And we see that there in verse 24 with one of the most startling verses in all of Scripture. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, Moses, and sought to put him to death. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I, I never see that coming. Like, I'm reading this, like, Moses, great, Egypt, great, God's killing him, great, what? <laughs> Some of the most jarring verses in all of Scripture. Because so far in Exodus, we've seen God raise up this boy, Moses, spare his life twice, really, appear to him in this burning bush, send him on a mission to be the deliverer of his people, reassure him that he's going to protect him, and now as Moses is finally obeying and God has promised his presence, here comes God to meet him with encouragement to kill him. To say it's bizarre is an understatement. I mean, what's going on, God? Maybe God is sort of capricious rage monster. Maybe something did rub him the wrong way all of a sudden. And church, if you're taken aback by these verses, you're in good company. Now, scholars call these verses some of the strangest in the Old Testament. They seem out of place. They seem mysterious, even sinister. So what are we to do with them? What's going on? First, I think we need to be reminded that this is not here by accident. So God has communicated this entire book to us for our benefit, including this crazy near-death experience. So we can approach these verses in confidence that they do teach us truths about God. But now the question is, what are those truths? 
Well, as Maria von Trapp would say, let's start at the very beginning. So if you remember back in Genesis, God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would bless Abraham and his descendants and through them bless the entire world. You can read about that covenant promise in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. But as you get to Genesis 17, you'll see God not only making a covenant with words, but actually giving a physical sign of that covenant, a sign to mark off his people as his own. So in Genesis chapter 17, verse 10, we see God speaking to Abraham and saying, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then skipping down to verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God in his mercy had made this covenant to bless his people, a covenant that would eventually be fulfilled in the coming of Christ to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham. And circumcision was to be the sign that these were his, the recipients of the covenant. Why circumcision? It's kind of weird, right? Especially on those Sundays where we mention it dozens of times in our service. And if you're here especially and you haven't grown up in church and it just still seems weird to you, I just want you to know that that's okay. It's okay to think that this sounds weird. But that doesn't change the fact that this was God's chosen way to distinguish his people from all others. To distinguish those who were inside the covenant, receiving God's blessings from those outside of the covenant, receiving God's curses. Literally, in life or death matter. In fact, we do find out later in Deuteronomy and later in Paul's writings in the New Testament more of the meaning of circumcision and how eventually it was assigned to point to a deeper spiritual reality, something called the circumcision of the heart, setting us apart in our hearts as special to God, his chosen ones consecrated to him. So that's what circumcision meant. That's a little bit of the backstory. We get that. But why is God so angry again? Verse 25. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so it seems like Moses had not observed this covenant sign in regards to his son, Gershom. He had neglected to circumcise him. There's different reasons why. Maybe Zipporah hadn't grown up with that and thought it was weird. Maybe just you didn't do that in Midian, right? Nevertheless, Moses had neglected this command. And so here he is, this guy who's been called by God to deliver his people. And here it turns out he hasn't even carried out the most basic sign of the covenant of that God. Moses is supposed to deliver Israel. He's not even going to deliver his own son. His son is effectively cut off from God. It's that serious. One commentator puts it this way. As the one who will deliver Israel, Moses, 
must be committed to the very covenant that lies at the heart of God's redemptive plans for the whole of humanity. Moses has neglected God's command. He's facilitated the breaking of the covenant in his own family. And so as he journeys to Egypt, God appears in judgment and wrath, ready to smite him for this disobedience. But still, I mean, come on, right? Isn't God flying off the handle here? I mean, he could have come up to Moses politely as Moses saddled his donkey and said, hey, Mo, you know, one more thing. You haven't circumcised Gershom yet. So maybe just take care of that surgical procedure and be on your way, okay? I mean, wouldn't that have been easier? Why is God all of a sudden responding in this wrath? I think from our perspective, it does seem like God is making this harder than it needs to be. But brothers and sisters, I think this passage is here to instruct us in how to perceive of God. These brief three verses force us to recognize that he is a God of severe justice. Perfect holiness. And he's not afraid to execute it. In fact, he will always execute it perfectly. You'll never find this judge sitting on his hands. Recognize that God is judge. And he's super serious about it. Alec Matera writes, the Lord treats obedience with a seriousness that is in marked contrast to our casual and self-excusing ways. Because we tend to think of justice as essential for other people, right? Larry Nasser. And indeed it is. But we want to excuse ourselves. Give ourselves a free pass. God is not like us. He is holy and just. And so when we see his justice worked out in these extreme measures, in these verses, we get taken aback because we never see justice exercised like that in this world, right? Every authority, every government, every judge we see on earth executes justice at the best imperfectly. So when we think of the category good judge, we do so with plenty of caveats. They need to be held accountable. They need to obey the law. They need to observe precedents that have been set before, and they won't always get it right. And that's to be expected. After all, they're only human. But church, those caveats don't exist with this judge. Every execution of judgment coming down from his holy courtroom is perfect. He never needs to worry that he'll get something wrong or he won't see the evidence correctly. He rules perfectly. And so when he calls something a big deal, it's a big deal. We must beware of remaking God into our image, making him palatable, a God that we are okay worshiping. We must be vigilant against that temptation and repent and believe in him as he's actually revealed himself to be here. A judge full of justice and holiness. When we see him like that, it changes everything. 
And church, do you see what turns God's anger away in those verses? It's the shedding of blood, isn't it? Here we get a sneak peek of what's coming up in the next few chapters. Moses is spared because his son's blood is shed. And eventually all of Israel will be spared because the blood of the sacrificial lamb is shed. Zipporah saves the day. She sees God's justice threatening her husband and she acts swiftly to fulfill God's command and justice is satisfied. The judge hardens, the judge executes. Finally, the judge pardons. Look there in verse 26. God's wrath subsides. He leaves Moses alone. He doesn't kill him. Blood is shed and Moses goes free. See, God the judge is just, but that doesn't mean he's not merciful. Moses should have been struck dead for his disobedience, not only here in this chapter, but for so many chapters so far. I mean, way back in chapter 2, when he murders the Egyptian. And in chapter 3, as he approached the burning bush, he should have been roasted by God's white-hot holiness, but he hasn't been. God has been merciful. We're reminded of God's mercy again as the passage wraps up there in verse 31. Aaron has arrived on the scene. He and Moses have met up with the Israelites and they've believed. And then we see when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. We see there what we've seen many times in Exodus so far, that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. That word means pay attention to. He had compassion on their suffering. This had been a constant theme throughout. If you remember back in at the beginning of uh, the end of chapter two, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And now we see God has heard and he's putting a plan into action. He's paid attention to their need. He's promised to lead them out of slavery and he will. Christian, the same is true for, for you and for me. God, the judge, has a complete record of each and every sin we've committed against him. And the just penalty for every one of those sins is death. We've rebelled against this holy judge. But he's refrained from putting us to death. He's kept his punishment at bay. He's chosen to pardon us. Why? How? How could a perfect judge not execute justice on people who deserve it? Because blood has been shed. God, the judge, 
hasn't just looked and said, it's okay. He has executed justice to the nth degree, but not on us. He's executed it on a substitute instead. Jesus came. And when he died on the cross, the Bible says he became sin for us. So even though he was pure, even though he was very God in the flesh, he became sin for us so that he could take our punishment for us. Jesus is this one whose blood was shed, whose blood was thrown on guilty people so we can be saved. The judge being judged for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, there's been plenty in this passage that might have struck you as strange. But this is the strangest. Jesus is your only hope because you've done things that require God's punishment. Your guilt is real. The only way for you to get out from under that guilt and that weight is not to explain it away or ignore it or pretend it isn't real. The only way to be free is to have someone else take your guilt for you. And that's what's so unbelievably hard to believe. Jesus has done that for you. There's no better news in the world. Will you not receive that? Will you not turn to him today? God the judge will not be patient forever. So while there's time, turn and receive the pardon from his bench. Receive Christ as the one who has died in your place. Repent and believe. If you have questions about that, talk to somebody sitting next to you after the service is over. Most of us are not scary. Or you can talk to me afterwards. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to be redeemed by God. And dear church family, how ought we to respond to this judge who's pardoned us through Christ? Look again in verse 31. They bowed their heads and worshiped. The way we respond to the judge who has pardoned sin-sick souls is worship worshiping him for his perfect love, mercy, and justice, worshiping him with our lives and our obedience. Because can you see how worthy he is of that? Christian, you will never feel the full extent of God's wrath because Jesus drank that cup to the very last drop for you. You will never know hell because Jesus took it for you. You will never know the full brunt of God's justice because Jesus suffered that for you. So as we come to the Lord's table now, let's glory in that Redeemer. Let's bow our heads and let's worship. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We are awed again by your mercy towards us. Help us to trust you and to rest in your grace this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our glory, my Redeemer.